1: This morning, we are finishing a sermon series in the book of Nehemiah. Um, We'll be starting next week a a series on the Psalms, uh, that set of Psalms in the the Old Testament that are particularly referencing Jesus and that are quoted in the New Testament, often called the Messianic Psalms. We're going to be looking at those over the summer. Uh, But today, we look at the end of the book of Nehemiah. We've seen Nehemiah uh, and his friend and partner, Ezra, Uh, is God used them to rebuild the city of Jerusalem and the people of Israel in their time. They led them out, uh, a group of them out of exile in Babylon, then Assyria. They've rebuilt the temple. They've rebuilt the walls around the city. And then in recent chapters, we saw them uh, renewing, the people renewing their worship and commitment to God. Unfortunately, Nehemiah uh, ends on a bit of a down note. Uh, is indeed every, every book of the Old Testament, every book of the Bible uh, is written not just to tell its own story, but to point us ahead and beyond itself to point us to Jesus, right? To show us that no matter how great Moses was, he wasn't Jesus. No matter how great Ezra was, he wasn't Jesus. No matter how great Nehemiah was, that he could not ultimately be the one uh, to heal the problem at the heart of the human situation. And so uh, Nehemiah chapter 13 Is where we will be this morning, starting in verse 4. And so, if you're willing and able, would you please stand as we read God's Word?
0: Our reading today is Nehemiah 13. Now before this, Elisha the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the thirty-second year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I was went to the king and after some time I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem and I then discovered the evil that Elisha had done for Tobiah preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God and I was very angry and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber then I gave orders and they cleansed the chambers and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses, and I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses Shelemiah the priest Zadok the scribe and Padea of the Levites and as their assistants Hanan the son of Zachar son of Mattaniah, for they were considered reliable and their duty was to distribute to their brothers remember me O my God concerning this and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also, who lived in the city, brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, Why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come to the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true, and it is given to us in love.
1: Emily, thank you so much. There's something really funny about hearing your sweet voice say, I will lay hands on you. there is a, there's a, a tragic scene in the Gospels uh, right near the arrest of Jesus when Jesus takes his disciples after they've celebrated uh, his last supper with them and he takes um, Peter, James, and John into the Garden of Gethsemane. And he says to them, wait here, watch and pray while I go off to pray. And he comes back and he finds the three of them uh, asleep. While he has been agonizing with God in prayer, while he's been focused on what's ahead of him at the cross, they started to pray and then forgot or got tired and fell asleep. This is really a similar scene that we come to here. Nehemiah uh, has given over a decade of his life to these people in Jerusalem, to rebuilding the city, to rebuilding the people, to rebuilding the walls, and then he goes away for a little while. He goes away, goes back to Babylon, resumes his spot there as cupbearer to the king, and he comes back to visit and finds uh, an absolute wreck. That where he had restored the temple, now they had one of his uh, deepest enemies had set up shop in the temple, where the people had promised uh, to not deal or let others deal on the Sabbath, that now they had set up a market on the Sabbath where they had told him and told God that they were not going to take husbands and wives from the pagan, uh, non-believing nations around them and so dilute their faith, here they were uh, disregarding that entirely. It's like if I uh, were to go away on vacation and come back two weeks later and find, uh, hey, no, we stopped worshiping on Sundays. I know we said we were going to, but we stopped doing that. Um, yeah, no, we took the bank account and we, bought a, we just bought a bunch of sports cars that we were, thought looked nice. Um, you know that the, Nehemiah, their pastor, their leader, leaves, and they just turn their back on everything they said they were going to do, everything that he thought they were about together. They've forgotten. This shows us, I think, that they have a tendency uh, to Forget and that we have a tendency to forget. One way of thinking about sin is that it is this ever-present tendency to forget who we are, to forget who God is, to forget what matters most in our lives, that each of us tends towards forgetfulness of what matters most. In his book, The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat, uh, the neurologist, who, uh, Dr. Oliver Sachs, he just passed away a couple of years ago. This book is a, a series of stories that Sachs tells of people that he dealt with in his psychiatric and neurology practice. And he tells the story of a man named Jimmy, who he met in 1975. Jimmy walked into Dr. Sachs' office one day and greeted him with, hi, doc, nice morning. Do I take this chair here? And sat down. Sacks says that Jimmy was cooperative and answered all of the questions that he asked about his memory. He remembered his childhood home, his friends, his school, his time in the Navy that he had joined in 1943. He was stationed on a submarine, and he could even remember the Morse code that was used uh, in his role there. But Jimmy uh, had a a disease, a rare, rare disease known as Corsacks disorder that enabled him to have a very good memory up to a certain point of his life and then to go completely blank. So he remembered uh, nothing after 1945. So in his mind, he was still a 19-year-old in the Navy, whereas in reality, when he met Dr. Sachs, he was 49 years old. Dr. Sachs showed him a mirror, and Jimmy looked at it, and he describes it as he suddenly turned uh, turned ashen and gripped the sides of his chair. What's going on? What's happened to me? Is this a nightmare? Am I crazy? He still believed that the president was Harry Truman and that no one had been to the moon. As he stared at this mirror and believing himself to be 19, looked at a picture of a 49-year-old aging man looking back to him, he began to panic. And so Sachs took him and set him in a window where he looked out at a baseball game down below and left him there for a few minutes. And as he watched the game of baseball, he started to come back to himself a bit. Dr. Sachs came back to him and he turns back to him and says, oh, hey, a Doc, I'm Jimmy. Do I take this chair over here? He said, have we met? I don't think so. Over the next uh, seven or eight years, he tended to Jimmy as a patient. He lived in the home uh, that Dr. Sachs worked in. He walked around the halls but never really learned his way. He'd play rapid games like checkers and tic-tac-toe and do well, but he'd get lost at games like chess because the moves went too slowly. Sachs wrote this of him. He says, I have never encountered or even imagined such a power of amnesia. The possibility of a pit into which everything, every experience, every event would fathomlessly drop. The staff at the home began to speak of Jimmy as a lost soul. When we lose our memory... Uh, When we lose our memory of who we are, of who God is, of what matters most, of our story with him, we do become like lost souls without anything to hang our experience on, without any way to to chart the way in our lives. We become like lost souls. The people of Nehemiah's day became lost in their forgetfulness. And so our story uh, today from Nehemiah 13 really is one of memory and loss, memory and forgetfulness. The people's sin, their forgetfulness, our forgetfulness, in God's memory. First, let's look at sin, this tendency to forget uh, that we have. Sin leads us to forget who we are. Uh, we're going to say that it, it, we forget who we are, we forget whose we are, and we forget our story. First, we forget who we are. In verse 15, we learn that the people had stopped observing the Sabbath. Right, He begins, in those days I saw in Judah people treading winepress on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys. Right, The Sabbath for Israel was an identity marker. Right In the Ten Commandments, they're told to remember, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. We're actually given two different reasons why the people were to keep the Sabbath and both have to do with their identity. The first is in their created identity. They're told because God created the earth in 6 days and then he rested. And because you belong to God, you too should work for 6 days and then rest. So it's part of who you are as a created being that you're given this gift of 6 days of work and then a day of rest. The other one, struck even closer to home, it was that you were slaves in Israel, uh, you were slaves in Egypt. You used to work without a day off. You were driven by your slave masters. And yet now, under a new master, under the master that is God who set you free, he gives you the gift of rest. So you remember that God made you. You remember that God redeemed you and set you free. And therefore, while all of your neighbors, while everyone else that you know, work seven days a week without ceasing, you work six days and then you rest. You take this countercultural pose of rest on the seventh day, saying that we are not what we do, we are not what we produce, we are not how hard we work, and so you rest. And yet they had begun to lose this identity marker of taking rest. We learn as the story goes on in verses 23 and 24, uh, verses just beyond what we read. Nehemiah says, In those days I also saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab... And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod and could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. Right? They had also stopped maintaining their, their religious and cultural boundaries. Whole swaths of them had forgotten uh, the Hebrew language. They had lost what made them distinctively an Israelite people and had begun just to blend in with the people around them, adopting not only their language, but were to also understand their religious practices their views of the world, their ways of being. And so what we start to see happening here is a group of people forgetting their identity, forgetting who they are, who God's called them to be and made them to be. Sin always attacks us at this level. Sin always tempts us at the level of our identity. Think about it. Even Jesus in the wilderness, when when Satan led Jesus in the wilderness for his temptation. How does he begin each and every one of his temptations to Jesus? If you really are the Son of God. right? God had, had sealed him at his baptism. He'd heard the voice of the Father, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. He had seen the Spirit descend on him like a dove. And yet when Satan goes to tempt him, he says, if you really are the Son of God, right? if God really is your Father, can you really trust that you are who he says you are? And temptation always comes at us at this level of identity. Before we're tempted to do things that we ought not do, before we're tempted to cross lines we told ourselves we wouldn't cross, we're first tempted to believe that we are not who God says we are. That he does not love us in the way that he says he loves us, that we aren't really his sons and his daughters, that we aren't really his beloved. And friends, we live in a world uh, where our identity is constantly uh, made to feel like it's up for grabs, right? There was a time uh, where identity for people was more stable than it is today, right? There was a time where you knew who your identity was because of where you lived, of where you were born, of who your people and your family were, that most people were rooted to a particular place, a particular people. Uh, Many of them were were rooted in a particular way of belief and practice for their entire life. In our late modern world, much of that is up for grabs, right? We're told that it's up to us to produce our identity on an almost weekly or daily basis, right? We're viewed as that you primarily are the... We define ourselves by the most superficial things about ourselves, right? That you are how you look, how you present yourself, how you appear, the pictures that you put up of yourself into a social media world, right? That you are how you appear or that you are what you do, Right? You're, you're defined by your career, by your production, by, by what you put out into the world. We're constantly told that your identity is what you make of it. That your identity is what you choose. That your identity is the path that you chart. And we have this pressure on ourselves and we're constantly pressured to, to wonder, am I really who the world says that I am? Is, am I really the image that I put out in the world? Or is there a me that's deeper than that? Is there an identity that's grounded, that's deeper than just how I appear to others or their judgments of me, of whether they think a lot of me or think a little of me, whether I appear successful in the world's eyes or appear unsuccessful in the world's eyes? Is there something steady and reliable that can be counted on to know who I am and whose I am? Because the next thing that we're tempted to forget not only is who we are, but also whose we are. If you look, the story begins where we read it in verse 4. Now before this, Eliashib, the high priest, so this is the leader of the temple, the leader of Israel's religious life, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and he goes on about the offerings. The temple was the most significant part of Israel. And for Israel, they believed the temple was actually the most significant part of the world. Because the temple symbolized something that they believed was most true about the world, which is that God made us in order to live with us. Right? When God made Adam and Eve, our first parents in the garden, he placed them in a home where he meant to live with them. Right? We're told that he walked with them. Uh, face-to-face in the cool of the day, that he lived life face-to-face with them in the garden. And then after the fall, after sin enters the picture, that he gathered a people back to himself and he committed again to live with them, first in the tabernacle and then in the temple. That it was this place that God called his house, where he would live with his people by grace, where he would commune with them, where they would know him and live with him. And it was a symbol that one day he would live in the whole world that way. That one day, every man, woman, and child in the world would know what it was like to live in the presence of God, to know real communion with Him. And so the temple was the, the most sacred place in Israel's life. Again, in this passage, it calls it God's house. Right? God lives everywhere, the whole world is His, but in this place in particular, it's His house. And what happens in this story in His house is almost uh, too tragic to believe. Because in this most sacred place, Nehemiah's enemy, Tobiah, if you remember from the early chapters of this book, there were two main people, two main foreign rulers who set out to attack Nehemiah. They they had great names, Tobiah and Sanballat. They were uh, members of neighboring nations who conspired together against the rebuilding of the temple and the rebuilding of the city. They spread bad reports about Nehemiah and Ezra. They threatened warfare. They threatened invasion. And Nehemiah leaves and he comes back and he finds that Tobiah, one of these foreign rulers, who had happened to have married into the high priest's family, was given a big chunk of the temple basically to live in. To put his furniture in, to hold his stuff. He had rooms that he would store his things and he had rooms that he would live in. This is an absolute betrayal of God's temple. It's them saying the most sacred place in our life we've given to one of your enemies. The place that's most particularly yours, we've given to someone who's against you. And so Nehemiah comes in and understandably is deeply upset by this because he understands that it shows that they have forgotten. They have forgotten God. They've forgotten who they belong to. They've forgotten who redeemed them and put them here. Further, we see in verse 10, uh, that they've stopped giving their tithes and offerings. So they were told, we actually saw them promise at the end of chapter uh, 12, that they were going to give their offerings so the priests and the Levites could keep the temple services going. And by the time Nehemiah comes back, we're told the priests had to go back to their fields. Right? They, could no, they could no longer afford to live and keep the temple going, so they'd had to go back to their old work. They'd had to go back to being farmers. The people of Israel had come to believe Uh, in the midst of this, they had a difficult life. Coming back from exile, rebuilding a city, starting back their national life. And in the midst of that, in the midst of the insecurity that comes with that, wondering if at any moment their neighbors are going to invade them, the insecurity of that that comes from wondering whether or not their economy is going to get back on its feet, whether they're going to be able to be stable and, and have a livelihood there. They'd come to believe that the only things they could count on were what they could see and touch and count. Right, That what mattered most was securing alliances with their neighbors so they didn't attack them. What mattered most was saving their money so they could have a robust savings and economy. So they'd started to live in an inversion of what God calls us to by sight, not by faith. They'd begun to live as though uh, everything in their life was up to themselves. So if, it, if securing Tobiah and Sanballat's alliances meant giving them a chunk of the temple, marrying their families, bringing them into, the, into Israel, then so be it. That's what we were going to have to do. If saving enough to have a stable economy meant that we didn't keep the temple going and the priests had to go get second jobs, well, then that's just what it was going to mean. Because they had lost reference to the God who redeemed them. They'd forgotten whose they were. And friends, we have the same temptation every day. Uh, to believe that the most real things about our lives are the things that can be touched, counted, measured, and seen, right, to believe that what matters most for our security is the size of our bank account, to, rem- to believe that what matters most for our emotional lives, right, are the, are the relationships that we can see and number in our lives, to believe that what matters most in our families is our children's grade point averages, right, we have a tendency to reduce our lives to what can be quantified and to lose reference to the unseen, that the scriptures tell us is just as real. Paul, uh, in writing to the Galatians, says this, this is Galatians 1.6. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Right, this new church in Galatia, this new, this new body of believers, he said, When I was just with you, you started out so well, you were grounded in the gospel, full of the Spirit, going great. And it's astonishing how quickly you've traded the real gospel for another gospel. Eugene Peterson, in his paraphrase of that passage in The Message, uh, I love this. He says, I can't believe your fickleness. How easily you have turned traitor to him who called you by the grace of Christ by embracing a variant message. Because there's this tendency that we have, once we forget whose we are, we forget God, we forget our story. We forget the story of our own sin. We forget the story of God's grace. We forget the story of how deeply we've needed him and all that he's done. We forget uh, our own history. Look at verse 18 in our passage. Uh, This is after uh, Nehemiah has confronted them about the Sabbath. He says in verse 18, Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? And now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. Nehemiah says, look, don't you remember that the reason we were carried into exile at the beginning of all this was because your forefathers stopped keeping the Sabbath and stopped keeping God's worship. And now you're doing the same thing your fathers did. A little later in verse 26, when dealing with the issue of, of marrying people who didn't share their gods, verse 26, did not Solomon, the king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all of Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Right? He says, you've forgotten Solomon, the most wise man, the most wise king you were ever given, who, who in taking up a harem of foreign wives was led astray from God. He's reminding them of their story, reminding them of their history, reminding them of the fact that they're thinking that they are so different than their fathers, thinking they're so different than Solomon, that they could do the same things and yet get something different in return. We have this incredible tendency to forget our own stories to forget our own sin, to forget the waywardness and frailty of our own hearts. Right? Some of you know what it's like uh, to, be, to know yourself to be in the bondage of an addiction, right? to have something in your life uh, that you are not powerful enough to get over on, right? that you feel powerless against. And you know th- the way that you've spun your wheels saying, you know what, this time it's going to be different. This time I can do some of the same things that I've always done, but this time I'm going to be stronger than I was back then, right? I can put myself in the same places. I can, you know what? I can, have, I can use a little bit of the same substances, and it's going to be different this time. You go, well, why is it going to be different this time? Yeah, well, because I'm stronger now. You go, no, no, you are just as frail, just as sinful, just as weak as you have ever been. And this goes whether your addiction is to a substance, whether your addiction is to your money, whether your addiction is to pornography, whether your addiction uh, is to your uh, your own ego and reputation, that all of our addictions make idiots of us, right? They make fools of us, that we start to believe, we forget our story, we forget our history, and we start to get full of ourselves again, even though we have a lifetime of evidence that we are weak and frail and in need of God's grace. We have every reason to be skeptical of our own hearts, right? To not give ourselves the benefit of the doubt that this time I'm going to be wise enough and strong enough and good enough. And so like Israel, we forget our story. Nehemiah had done so much, he built so much, and yet in a few months away, it all falls back into disrepair. I think this is just such a sad but fitting picture of our life right? The Christian life feels this way to us, doesn't it? We build something up over here, and then we go over here, and this this falls down. We gain a little bit of progress in in one area of our lives, and then another area of our lives starts to leak, right? The Christian life feels like one step forward, two steps back, three steps forward, four steps back. Go forward, fall down, get up, fall down, stay down for a while, get up again, right? (laughs) I I think all of us believed that it was going to be easier than this uh, when we first started following Jesus, right? The reality is, friends, that it's hard and that sin remains present in our lives. That tendency to forget is always just hanging out uh, around our hearts, tempting us back towards forgetting ourselves, forgetting our God. And so what's needed uh, is memory. Right? If our problem is forgetfulness, what's needed is the ability to remember. The ability to remember who we are and what's, tre- what's true and what's real, even in the midst of our stumbling and our falling and our faithlessness. Five times in these verses, Nehemiah makes one prayer, God, remember. God, remember. C.S. Lewis, uh, in his book, uh, Mere Christianity, wrote this. He says, one must train the habit of faith by making sure that some of its main doctrines shall be deliberately held before your mind for some time every day. That is why daily prayers and religious reading and church going are necessary parts of the Christian life. We have to be continually reminded of what we believe. Neither this belief nor any other will automatically remain alive in the mind. It must be fed. This is the practice that Martin Luther referred to as preaching the gospel to ourselves every day, right? That it's not enough uh, just to show up for church uh, once a week, once a month, however often it may be, and get reminded of the gospel because we forget it at at a much quicker rate than that. We forget who we are. We forget Jesus' love. We forget what's true daily. And so we need to be reminded of it every day. You know, I have this bad habit my alarm uh, to wake up in the morning is set on my phone. And so the first thing that I do every morning when I wake up uh, is reflexively reach over and grab my phone. And I pick it up to turn off the alarm, and then I check the news, then I get on Facebook, then I get on Twitter, then I get on ESPN.com. Before I know it, all of these messages have already flooded into my heart about who I am, about what's most important about my day, about what matters most, about my identity, right? All of these things come up. I wonder what kind of difference we would make in my life if the first thing I grabbed wasn't my phone, but was my Bible, right? If the first thing that I spent time in wasn't, wasn't the noise uh, that comes flooding into my, my handheld device, but the silence of a morning spent with God. Now, I do typically eventually put the phone down, um, But those habits make us. Those habits shape us. Those habits uh, have a tendency to make us remember certain things and forget certain things. And Jesus calls us uh, to remember. But I love the fact that what Nehemiah prays over and over, what he goes to isn't, God help me remember, right? It's not, God remind me to not get forgetful. God remind me. It's not that. What does he say? He says, God remember me. Right When I'm forgetful, you remember me. For, remember me, God. He ends, uh, the last verse we read, verse 22, Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. This is a theme that comes up over and over in the Scriptures, that our hope before God has to do not with our remembering of Him, but His remembering of us, and that we are never outside of His heart or His mind or His knowledge. Genesis 8.1 tells us that God remembered Noah in the midst of a world gone mad with wickedness and sin. God remembered Noah and his family. Habakkuk chapter 3, Habakkuk prays to God, God, in your wrath, remember mercy. Genesis chapter 40, Joseph, uh, while he's languishing uh, in, in an Egyptian prison, we're told that God remembers him there in the prison. Luke 23, 42, maybe the most beautiful of all of them. The thief on the cross, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Right, the hope of the gospel uh, isn't that we will finally get over our forgetfulness and remember God perfectly, but it's that God always, always, always remembers us. That when you feel forgotten, when you feel alone, when you feel like God doesn't see you or know you, that God always and everywhere remembers you, and he knows you, and you're not lost to him. Now, this throws throws us into the midst of a problem, uh, which I'll call the problem of God's memory, uh, which is the problem of God's memory is this. Um, If God doesn't remember me, I'm lost, right? If God doesn't remember me, I am without hope. And yet there's parts of my life that I just assume God forgets right if if god forgets me i'm without hope but if god remembers some of my life i'm also without hope right if god remembers some of my words if god remembers some of my actions if god remembers some of the places i've gone and the things that i've done then i am lost so how does god resolve the problem of his own memory how can he remember us and yet not immediately go into his own memory of our sin which demands his judgment? And the answer, friends, is, is of course, the cross of Jesus, right? That the cross is the way that God's problem of memory is resolved. What does Nehemiah say? Remember me in your steadfast love, your faithful, gracious, merciful, committed love, right? In Christ, God remembers us and forgets our sin. In Christ, when we are wrapped in Christ, when we are clothed in Christ, when we place our faith in Christ, It means that when God calls us to mind, when he remembers us, he remembers us clothed in the righteousness and love of his son. He remembers us with all of the affection and love that he views his own son. And when he looks at our sin, what does the psalmist tell us? That he removes our sin as far as the east is from the west. As though it were cast into the depths of the ocean. It enables God to remember us as he remembers his son to remember us as his sons and his daughters. And so then we can live our life in the confidence that we are remembered by our God. And then he calls us uh, to bear this memory in the world. I love, I love Nehemiah's role in this story. Nehemiah constantly praying, God, remember me. God, don't let, don't let these, the faithlessness of this people uh, be the only thing you remember about my life. Remember me. But then Nehemiah shows a salty side uh, in this, in this uh, chapter. Right? He, you know, he, we, we already read him say, I'm going I'm to put my hands on you. Right? If you keep doing this, you're going to catch these hands. Later, we're told uh, that he pulls somebody by their hair. He pulls their hair out in his anger. Right? It's like Nehemiah is the only sane person left going, don't you people Remember? Don't you remember that this is not the way it's supposed to be? This is not who you are. This is not who God is. This is not the story that God is telling in your life. Friends, the church is called to this witness of redemptive memory, of being the people in the world that go, friends, this is not the way it's supposed to be. You were made for more than this. You can be more than this. God is different than you think he is. There is more that is possible for you, every decent thing that the church has ever done in this world has grown out of that reality, of a group of people saying, this is not the way it's supposed to be. Every revival, every movement of God, every ministry that's been started, church that's been planted, has been a group of people going, you know what, this is not the way it's meant to be. The world is not meant to be broken in this particular way. And I can't fix all the brokenness of the world but I can, I can lock in to this part, right? First Coast Women's Services wouldn't exist uh, if it wasn't for, for some people. It's actually some people we know, a, a, an elder and his wife at our mother church, Christ Church Mandarin, whose own daughter was in a place of, of pregnancy and looking for resources and looking around in Jacksonville going, we don't, we're lost. We don't know who to, get, who to turn to for help. We don't know to her, who to turn to for counsel. Where does a young girl in this place go? And they said, well, hey, we'll start something. We'll do something. And now 30-something years later, it's still going, and it's been passed on to another generation of people that help, because people had a memory that this is not the way it's supposed to be. God wants something more. Which brings us back to our friend Jimmy uh, that we met uh, in the introduction, uh, our Jimmy uh, with, the, with the amnesia, Carsac syndrome. Oliver Sacks ends the story of Jimmy in his book, Our Lost Soul, uh, with this incredibly moving story. Sachs uh, observes uh, one day, he walks past the chapel in the clinic and he sees Jimmy uh, there in the chapel receiving communion. And he sees Jimmy for a brief moment completely differently than he'd ever seen Jimmy before. This is the way Sachs describes it. Fully, intensely, quietly, In the quietude of absolute concentration and attention, he entered and partook of the Holy Communion. He was wholly held. There was no Korsakov's disorder then, for he was no longer at the mercy of meaningless sequences and memory traces. He was absorbed in an act of his whole being. This table that we're going to come to in just a few moments. What, is, what does Jesus say? What do we say every time we take this meal? Do this in remembrance of me. Right? When you come around this table, do this in remembrance to keep the memory alive of who Jesus is, of who you are, of what's most true about you. And as we do this, we, it's not a mere memorial. Right? We're not just remembering. We're remembering the God who remembers us. We're coming to the God who's come for us. We're holding on to the God who holds to us. We're receiving the God who receives us in the mercy of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we confess that we are so often forgetful. Uh, we wake every morning uh, into a world that asks things of us, uh, that puts pressure on us uh, to define ourselves in every other way than as your beloved sons and daughters, sealed by your Spirit, joined in Christ, received by our Father, Lord, help us to remember the God who remembers us. Help us, Lord, uh, to remember even when wandering, even when guilty, even when doubting, uh, that you remember, that you never forget us, that you never lose us, you never forsake us, but that you hold us in your mind and in your heart. Uh, You hold us uh, in your nail-scarred hands. Lord Jesus, help us uh, to remember you.